0: Hey, a couple of housekeeping things. The basket in front of you is for Christmas sherry today. So uh, if you really give, give off and be generous, so Christmas sherry is, is coming up and gearing up to start. Hey, it's my privilege this morning to introduce our Bible study teacher and preacher for the weekend. Um, old good friend of St. John Congregation, like a former intern, uh, many, many, well, not many, a few moons ago. many yeah, he's me. a young guy. But. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mummy, who these days is Associate Professor of Theology at Concordia University, Wisconsin. So I'm uh, to Dr. Mummy's teaching, and I'll hand it off to him. Thank, thank you very much. Is my mic, my mic doing okay? Yes. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. Good to be back with you today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. This congregation is a blessing to me, a blessing to many for many, many years now. Uh, and so when an invitation came to, to preach and teach this morning, I was very happy to have it. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who are both truth and life, pour out your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to follow you and remain in you and with the Father. This we ask of you, even as you live and reign with him in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. amen. So what I would like to do with you this morning is to do, what could we say? It's almost like a little bit of Reformation history where we're going to take something like an artifact out of the Reformation and hold it up and look at it for a little bit, and then say, what does that tell us about the Reformation, and what does this tell us about this thing, uh, and, and what are we taking away from that as a whole? So what I want to talk about today is holy absolution, so we often, most often talk about that in terms of confession and absolution, absolution being the more important bit of confession and absolution, because that's the bit that the Lord is doing, and so then we can say holy in front of it. And I want to think about that as a way of thinking about the Reformation, but I also want to suggest to you today that this very interesting category of absolution, confession and absolution, is actually not only not something that Lutherans never got rid of, you probably know that here, but actually maybe even the essential catalyst to the Reformation itself. So we're going to kind of take that up and and have a look at it. Um, Good. So let's... uh, This is uh, the little picture here is Johannes Bugenhagen. Johannes Bugenhagen would have been the parson that is the. Uh, sort of leading minister or head pastor in the city of Wittenberg at the time and so you can see him there he has he's depicted with keys Uh, this goes back to uh, Matthew chapter 16 with uh, uh, Peter being told by Jesus I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and so one man's sins are being forgiven he has come penitently there his sins are being absolved this man however who would turn his back on it his sins are being bound Uh, whatever you bind on earth Will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, that's just to the, to the visual there. Now we're celebrating the Reformation today, right? And so, for me, I've I've been in this club my whole life, if you will. I I've, I grew up Lutheran. I went to a Lutheran school. I went to a Lutheran high school. I I kind of, this is kind of how it worked for me. I knew everything about being Lutheran because everybody in my family had been for four generations so like i i I just kind of knew this stuff right i I was born a card-carrying member and what i want to say is that we all have associations uh, especially for those of us who are lutherans or have grown up that way with words like lutheran and with uh, words like reformation let me just talk about those two words for a moment so lutheran can mean a lot of things historically first and foremost what lutheran was was in some ways pointing to some kind of teaching or some kind of doctrine. Uh, what, what began uh, the Reformation and the reform movement was actually emanating from kind of a new university in a one-horse town in, in northern Germany where uh, Luther was teaching and then his colleagues and then a reform of the university. And, and, and this was associated with that teaching coming out of Wittenberg. So we might associate Lutheran with doctrine. Uh, Eventually, we associate Lutheran not with the confession sense of confession of sins, but a, what could we say, a particular confession of the Christian faith. I I quoted from the Augsburg Confession, for example, in the sermon. Eventually, these evangelical reformers of northern Germany make an attempt to state the faith clearly as a confession uh, in the in the longer course of the Reformation. However. That word goes on to have broader associations. In, in the 16th century, certainly through Luther's lifetime, the evangelical reformers never accepted the word Lutheran as a self-designation, nor used it except as a pun on themselves. It was pejorative it suggested that they were schismatics, that they were breakaways from the one true church. They're not followers of Christ. They're not Catholic in the sense of universal Christian and everywhere. They're the splinter group that has this guy Luther at the front. So they, they never really gave assent to that title. Uh, but eventually, the further course of history, the Reformation didn't reform the whole of the Western church. It was a catalyst to much reform in the Western church. But eventually, the Western church splintered right you had a reform going on in wittenberg eventually you had one going on or two going on in switzerland you had one going on in other places like Strasbourg, and eventually france uh the low countries england multiple reformations actually but eventually what you have late 16th century moving into the 17th century is groups of christians who are identifying themselves by contradistinction to one another okay so i'm a lutheran well what does that mean well i'm not a roman i'm not a papist right I'm not a follower of the Pope, so I'm this kind of Christian. And and I'm not Reformed, right? I'm not like those Swiss Swiss Reformed people. I'm a Lutheran. So my identity then, then I'm taking the title and putting it over against other things. We want to, because that's where we grew up. That's where I grew up. But what happens when we start thinking about this from inside of the 16th century itself? They're very interesting. Reformation, how about that word? Uh, a series of events, a juncture in history, uh, early to mid 16th century, that is looking to address abuses in the church. Uh, it's happening at a really sort of fast moving juncture of history. Technological revolution, like unto our own, right? Print communication was new then. We have digital communication now, but then print ref- uh, communication was new. So eventually we have a series of events in the Reformation that are seeking to reform the Western Church in its head and in its members, but eventually splits the Western Church. Okay, So this is is the juncture we're looking at there in history. What I would like to say to you is if we think about the people we now know as Lutherans, this group around Luther uh, in the 16th century during this series of events, that what we will find there is not this group that's yet living in contradistinction to this or that, but rather living within the Western church, but attempting to do that in what I would say is a beautiful and wonderful way. I would even recognize it as God's own working in history. What do I mean by that? What is a Lutheran within the 16th century? If we get that, I think we get it even better now. I'd say it this way. That's the kind of Christians of the Western tradition that are really concerned to have the gospel distinct from the law. A good news message that is absolutely clear as good news and is not hampered and under some strictures of have to's. These are the get to Christians of the Western church who get the get to distinct from the got to. Okay? That's one thing. Another thing is, I would say they're the big Jesus Christians what the Lutheran reforms are seeking to do is to have Jesus reign, uh, big, beautiful, uh, with all of the facets of his person and work sort of ringing in and clear and not obscured. Uh, To my mind, if you get that, and that's there in the 16th century, then you understand all the better what it means to be a Lutheran subsequently. It's not to be necessarily this versus that, but it's to be within the whole and to be raising up the gospel as this beautiful message that has Jesus' big, beautiful, clear, okay? A few starting thoughts there. Now, as we're thinking about the Reformation, uh, of course, we were really at a high watermark of this about two years ago as we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We're also dealing with a person and people, Uh, And then especially if you're in the Lutheran tradition, you're dealing with this guy, uh, Martin Luther, the the 16th century uh, reformer. What do we know about him? Well, we know a lot of things. This is actually very well documented. But some of the ones I think we think about a little bit less rather than more would be these. So first of all, when the key reforms are uh, starting to happen and take shape, let's say from after he gets at Wittenberg, 1511, 12, Through 1517, the nailing of the 95 Theses is kind of arbitrary. We'll talk about that in a moment for dating the Reformation. But who is this guy? You can see him dressed like this here. He's actually a friar. He's he's in monastic orders. He's taken holy orders, quote, unquote, as a friar. uh, And he's not just any kind of a friar. He's like the Marine Corps kind, right? He didn't just go into the sissy Augustinian order. He went into the observant Augustinian order. He was serious business kind of Christian Uh, in in the not-yet-gospel-clear-from-law way, very much under the pressures of the law, serious kind of Christian. So he's an observant Augustinian friar. He has come through the University of Erfurt. He's attained three academic degrees by the time uh, he gets to Wittenberg or shortly thereafter. He completes his doctorate through Erfurt. And then he's also the city preacher. Now, this is very important in a a medieval uh, setting and in uh, in a medieval town. Uh, if you're going to be kind of an up-and-coming city, an up-and-coming town today, you know, you need some major sports teams, you need a convention center, you need a good park in the middle, you need a zoo, you got to have some things. Public transit, really important these days in the life. If you're a medieval city moving to the Reformation, you got to have yourself a rock star preacher, right? You can't just have any bumpkin in the pulpit of the main city church. You got to have somebody in there who knows his business. So Luther was the city preacher. He was a friar. He was a city preacher and he was a professor or lecturer uh, at the university, those things we know about him. Now, eventually, in the course of his own biography, he comes to insights and things click for him. And we have, in some ways, I would say arbitrarily, marked the Reformation with uh, October 31st, uh, 1517. But actually, if you start looking closely, Uh, at the 95 theses themselves it was on the eve of all saints day that he nailed these 95 theses for uh, public debate at the university to what was essentially the bulletin board of the city the castle doors if you actually read those things and go oh yeah i'm a lutheran this guy is luther you're going to be reading them and go what the heck is this stuff right he luther doesn't sound very lutheran in the 95 theses yet One of the things that 20th century Lutheran, uh, Luther scholarship, like the man, uh, scholarship about the man himself, his thought, debated more than anything else is, when did this decisive turn happen in his own thinking? Can we mark it? Where does the breakthrough point come to this insight about the gospel getting clear of the law, Christ being big and beautiful? Where does that actually happen? How can we see that? And quite honestly, by October 1517, we can see some things happening, but we don't yet see everything. And I would actually like to suggest to you that the turning point comes a little bit later uh, and does you know, have to do with some things that are kind of there in the controversy surrounding indulgences in these 95 theses, but that, interestingly enough, uh, Luther's turning point will have to do with confession and absolution. We're going to get there in a minute. Okay. So if we're analyzing Luther's biography, uh, I'm on to this slide of 1545 to to 1518 here, if you're looking down at your sheet. At the end of his life, people are starting to produce Luther's works. Okay. They're starting to print them. They, They like to make a buck as well, and they know that they can sell Luther. So by 1545, there's a Latin edition of his works that's going to be printed, and he writes a preface to it i'm going to quote from that preface you don't have it in front of you he's pointing back and he's pointing back to something that we know is happening right around 1518 this is what he says at last by the mercy of god meditating day and night i gave heed to the context of the words here he's talking about uh righteousness of god in romans chapter 1 I quote, in, the in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that, which the righteous, that by which the righteous lives as a gift from God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered its paradise itself through open gates. Now, here's my picture of Luther growing up. This is kind of the one I was given. And it's not untrue, but it's a little, what could we say? It's, it's not full, uh the picture i had growing up was that the catholic church which is an anachronism uh there was no roman catholic church until the council of trent which came well after the reformation or in the late reformation they didn't let people read the bible and the bible was hidden and it was like luther went down to the basement of the library and somehow discovered this thing and started reading it well of course if you're at the university you had been reading this all along uh, not everybody could read. Most people were illiterate. But he had three degrees in theology. He didn't discover the Bible, uh, and it was now being you know, produced by Gutenberg's press. At least in Latin, he would translate it himself. But he does, and don't miss this, want us to know that the reformational turn happens somehow also by meditating on the scriptures and understanding something different about God's righteousness than he had understood before which is basically to say he had understood God's righteousness before as God's own righteousness, God's own standard that he expects us to measure up to. uh, And then he had taken faith as like some sort of a demand in like keeping up with that. And what he came to realize here in Romans is that the righteousness of God is actually uh, a passive righteousness, not one that he expects us to measure up to, but one that he accords to us by way of faith such that if a person trusts in God, uh, he or she is straight with God, we would say. Has, has a good and right standing with God. Everything is great. Everything is fantastic. We're straight, we would say. Are we straight? Yeah, we're straight. That's, that's righteous. Uh, we're straight. We're right with God. And that by way of trusting in Christ for that standing. This has to do with Romans, no doubt about it. He's lecturing on Romans. He's lecturing on Galatians. Very essential. However... Mark that, we're also dealing with a highly educated theologian here who has three degrees in academic theology by this time, is the showcase preacher of his city, a university professor, and a skilled debater. So he wants us, this is rhetorical, to understand, read your Bibles and you will see this there, and I was doing this too. But also understand that in the way he was reading it was in a bigger context, okay? Now, what I want to do is I want to unfold that context into a decisive moment here. We know that this is pointing not just to 1517, but subsequently into 1518. And what I would like to suggest to you is that we can actually see in Luther's own thinking a decisive turn transpiring in the summer of 1518, and it will have to do with this. Also, not detached from the word of God, not detached from the Bible, not detached from everything else, but you might say Christian holistically all linked together, namely with what goes on in confession. Okay, now, my own doctor father has kind of been the guy who did the major research on this, but shortly what it comes down to is that there's a decisive breakthrough in Luther's thinking sometime or in the summer of 1518 that has to do with the relationship between word, so he's working in Latin, fides, and, I'm sorry, word, verbum, and faith, fides. Okay, it is this, that the word gives birth to faith, But not just any word. The word that gives birth to faith is an effective word that God himself speaks, a promissio in Latin, a promise, such that what God says, he brings it about in saying it. Uh, Think of creation, for example. God says, let there be light, and there is light. Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, I say to you, come out. And Lazarus comes out. These words do what they say. They're an effective word of God that brings about the very thing that is promised in them. So he comes to an understanding of the word as an efficacious, proclaimed oral word that effects and does what it says. Like, he realizes, the priest's word in holy absolution. And he will tie these things together, and I'll read you some quotes in just a moment. What does that mean? That means that actually the Lutheran Reformation, insofar as we think about Luther's own biography, indeed, of course, has to do with meditation on the Holy Scriptures, the doctrine of St. Paul, Romans, Galatians, all of that. But it also has to do with a reformed understanding that lives within the sacramental system of the church he's come into a conclusion about how God deals with human beings by realizing something new that he has not seen before about what goes on when he goes to the sacrament of penance, when he goes to confess his sins as he did regularly. Now, this I need to illustrate um, just a little bit. Am I going to do that here or somewhere else? Hold on just a second. I'm going to click one down. I'll do that in the next slide. Okay. Let's think about this for just a moment. See, we could even debate whether the word reformation is the best word to use. Actually, Luther used that word very seldom. Uh, There are whole books written on this. People don't pay attention to them very much. But that would have been too much for him to talk about the reformation of the church, like giving the church sort of some kind of a new form a little bit too big. Uh, that, that would almost have been hubris in his mind. We talk about it this way. But whatever happened, it is, we might say, the gospel reinvigorating of things that were forgotten, things that were clouded, uh, you might say pasted over. And this happens as well with what we know as confession and absolution. Now, I'm going to illustrate this. I've been warned by the vicar that these markers are like painting. So, I'm wearing black, so hopefully this will go. Wow, look at that. That really is going. Okay. Um, It's not a rejection of one and doing something totally different. It is saying something got pasted over and went wrong with this. Here's the right way. Okay, so let's think about this for just a moment. Uh, Now, look, I've already made a mess, and I don't need the marker yet. Uh, See, I have a napkin here. What can I do? I'm serious about that. Do you? Oh, thank you. You've rescued me. I don't know if this is going to help. but Coming out of the New Testament, when we are talking about the word that becomes the word behind penance, because by the time you get to the Middle Ages, you've got a sacrament of penance. The word for repent in the New Testament is metanoeo, not that you need to know Greek, but that means to change, so like do an about face with your heart and your mind. Your, nous, your noos is kind of like the combination of these two. So repentance means a change of heart and mind if you're doing it in the Greek. But if you move it into Latin, what happens then is you change that verb into a noun, and then the human being is supposed to do it. Poenitentium data. So there's, there's penance, and you're supposed to, as a human being, do the penance. Okay. So it's almost like this passivity of being affected by something that leads you to repent and then to be forgiven that then turns the action of repentance into a thing that you're supposed to deliver to God. And this is very much how the sacrament of penance is understood and being used in the Middle Ages. So let me just do the, the Middle Ages one here. Okay, I'm just going to do M-A, and there are four points to this. Okay, So basically, if you're going to have your f- sins forgiven in the late medieval Western church, this is how it works. First of all, uh, you have to have proper contrition. Okay, so proper contrition means that you have to be sorry for your sins out of love for God, all right? It won't simply do uh, to get paid as a peasant in the village and go on a drunken tear from one tavern to the other and feel bad the next day because you have a hangover and you made a fool of yourself. You have to repent because you love God, all right? If it's gonna count. One of those is contrition. The next of those is full oral confession that is to say, for everything you are going to be forgiven for, you actually have to remember that and bring it over your lips when you're confessing to the priest. It wasn't that Luther had a highly sensitive conscience, it's just that he knew theology, right? This is why he went to confession for hours, because he knew that that's how it worked. Uh, He came to understand it differently then, he came to understand this as an abuse, but that's what put him there can you imagine going to confession the only things you can be forgiven for is everything you remember and then what if you didn't go for a month or two months or three yikes the bar keeps getting higher now there's a third part in this and this is the one that's almost forgotten it's the priest's word of absolution wasn't much attention paid to that at the time it was there it was part of the rite, but it wasn't wasn't really attended to theologically and then fourthly there were works of satisfaction which were basically to say, okay, you've repented of this, that, and the other thing. Now to show that you're actually truly sorry for them, uh, go do this, that, and the other thing, okay? Basically, you're not forgiven unless you clear these three bars. Truly sorry out of love for God, say everything that you're going to uh, be forgiven for, and then act like it according to the works that are assigned you to act like. And then if you fulfill all of those three, then the priest's word of absolution would be valid for you. What Luther came to realize, and of course, this is the truth of the matter, when, when Christ gave the office of the keys to the holy apostles to loose sins on his behalf and to bind sins, to open heaven from earth and to close earth, is that when those people speak on his behalf, they're actually forgiving sins. This makes its way to us in the small catechism, of course, right? What do you believe when the called ministers of Christ deal with us according to his words? Uh, and then the pastor says to the penitent in confession, do you believe that my words are Christ's own words? And the penitent says, yes. What Luther came to realize is that Jesus is talking through the priest. And when Jesus talks, his words do things. Okay, so the Reformed understanding of this comes into uh, our own practice and into the catechism. So I'll, say, I'll just put Luther in here. What comes in? Um, this comes in. Not full auricular. Yes, go say it, but we're not going to put the bar of demanding everything. Uh, but confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution from God himself, not doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Okay? So the Lutheran Reformation is never just like a lot of people think con- confession, that's a Catholic thing. right? And then you understand your Lutheranness over against that. This, isn't, this doesn't work like that. This is within this and getting it gospel right and big Jesus right. That's what's going on here, okay? Now, let's think about this just a little bit further and how this plays out in the Reformation, okay? So I've suggested to you the big point is coming at 1517, but it's not there. But by the summer of 1518 in a couple of documents, we can really see this transition happening in Luther's works, and then it's going to get crystal clear, As he goes forward into his career, let me read to you a couple of things here. This is from Luther's resolutions concerning the 95 Theses. So after the Theses had come out, then he's got to respond to what people are saying about them. Listen to this, changing understanding. Uh, For if the person who is to be absolved is uncertain of the anguish of his conscience, as it must always be if it is a true sorrow, yet he is constrained to abide by the judgment of another... Not at all on account of the prelate, that is, the priest himself or his power, but on account of the word of Christ who cannot lie when he says, whatever you loose on earth. So he's quoting Matthew there. For faith born of this word will bring peace to the conscience. For it is according to this word that the priest shall loose sins. Okay. You can see the focus coming off of how much do I need to beat myself up to feel properly sorry? What can I manage? What things can I do to get me right with God? To the focus coming to lie here. Very interesting. I'm going to go to another one. We don't have this translated into English yet, but it's coming. Uh, a series of theses regarding also the uh, comforting of terrified consciences, also coming from late spring, summer 1518. I read the remission of guilt does not rest on the contrition of the sinner, nor on the office or power of the priest. It rests rather on, the wor- on faith in the word of Christ, which says, whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. He goes on. In the sacraments of the New Testament is present the word of him who promises remission, and thus faith of the one receiving remission is present. Do you see that? Where the word is present, where the word of Christ is present, effective, it affects faith. It actually brings about the faith. The word is out there in front of faith, and it's affecting it. It's a specific word, and it's coming here. Another quote. For nothing justifies but faith in Christ alone. For this justifying faith, the ministry of the word through the priest is necessary. The priests are servants of the word toward faith in the remission of sins. Okay, so by 1518, we're getting the breakthrough that is this really big, really robust word of God theology. But not word of God simply in the sense of the Holy Scriptures. That, of course but also word of God in the sense of the preached, proclaimed word right down to private confession and absolution where he comes to see, my goodness me, Christ is using the priest himself as an instrument to create and sustain faith. I want to suggest to you not only is that not Catholic and not Lutheran, this is at the very heart of what brought about the Reformation. Wonder of wonders. Okay. Okay. Oh, I love this little this little uh, like clip art icon uh, on, on the vicarage that I did uh, over in Germany. Your congregation helped me get there, by the way, all these years ago. Thank you again. This was in the confirmation materials. I got. I'm going to take a little aside here to just say one or two things. Okay. Uh, sometimes in the Missouri Synod, we've really struggled with the doctrine of the ministry. Like we kind of have scratched our head about over this for like 150, to 200 years now. Look at that. There's one little bit of clip art in the confirmation materials that got it all, okay? Why? Here's the pastor. In confession and absolution, what happens? This person is confessing his sins. This one is speaking the word of forgiveness on behalf of Christ. This is the one on whom Christ laid hands when he ordained him, right? I got no problem with that if I'm here, right? If he's just the guy who's speaking to me on Jesus's behalf, it can all be welcomed. It's, it's sort of all right there. Okay, so notice that what we get by the summer of 1518 is the understanding of a certain and infallible word that does exactly what it says. And what it says is, forgive sins, and what forgiveness of sins says is, you're straight with God, you're righteous. So there's a breakthrough to understanding the righteousness of God and justification before God that is bound up with a reformed understanding of confession and absolution. Fantastically interesting. Now, Luther's not done in 1518. Uh, He keeps going. He's maturing. And so I'm going to read to you here something that he writes in 1530. Uh, It's a treatise called On the Keys. So, again, naming that power that Christ entrusts to the apostolic ministry and thereby gives to the church to forgive and retain sins. Uh, He's writing a treatise on this. Uh, And the rhetoric of the treatise works like this. He's, He's looking at his papist interlocutors and saying, you know, it's funny with you all, because you've got a key that really can't seem to forgive sins. Like, every time you tell people they've forgiven, they're not quite, are they? There's always some kind of hurdles, and they're left wondering. But, you know, the thing is, Jesus gave two keys, and if one isn't working, if you can only bind sins, but you can't really loose them, they must not be Jesus' keys, okay? So he's doing this great rhetorical thing. It's brilliant law-gospel distinction. But what he's going to be getting at, and this is the decisive point, is that when that priest speaks the word of absolution, that pastor speaks the word of absolution on Christ's behalf, it just plain does what it does. Wow. And that's a word that I can hang faith on. Okay, listen to this quote. But if you say, as the fanatics and sophists do, sure, many hear the binding and loosing of the keys, but it doesn't make any kind of turn for them, and they remained unbound and unloose. Thus something more than the word in the keys needs to be there. Do you think he is not bound who does not believe the binding key? He shall certainly in due time find out that the binding key uh, was not of no avail, nor did it fail, because he did not believe it. That is to say, God forbid, if your pastor says your sins are bound, and you have that pish posh, you'll find out eventually that actually they are before God in heaven. I continue, even more importantly. Thus also, he who does not believe that he has been set free of his sins, forgiven, shall also in due time certainly learn just how surely his sins have been forgiven him right now. And he didn't believe it. St. Paul says in Romans three, God will not fail because our lack of faith. So you see, we're also not talking here about who believes the keys or not. We know very well that few believe rather we are speaking about what the keys do and give. Oh my. Right. Uh, Here's a little catchphrase that I learned as a Lutheran boy, and and that was the opposite other, ex opera operato. That's the Catholic thing. I don't believe that. Uh, This is, as scholars have said, uh, an ex verbo dicto understanding of the gospel. That is, by the word being spoken, it does what it says. And that's not not Lutheran. That's, That's Luther in the mature height of his law gospel distinguishing career. And Why? Because if you have an absolutely certain word of God, that God himself is speaking, that is the gospel pure, distilled in the form of forgiveness being spoken to a person, then we can hang our hearts on that. And it doesn't hang on our hearts. That's the way the relationship is meant to be. It gets creature, uh, creator and creature, God and man, uh, savior and sinner all aligned perfectly with one another. Uh, there is a word on which I can rely for forgiveness Uh, even if i don't have the reliance faith capacity in myself he's going to produce it (laughs) okay so just a summary here uh and then uh, if you want to ask me some questions i'll take questions i can do a little bit of subsequent history too i've got some uh, really interesting visuals here if we want to get into those but notice that the very turn with luther that eventually is the thing that will produce this theology that will produce what we now know as the reformation has to do with the word being the ground of faith but not just any word that's also a spoken word of promise that gives and affects what it says and that means then uh, a reformed understanding of something like the sacrament of penance that highlights absolution as such a forgiving and faith-giving word okay so you know take this one sentence summary of everything we've said so far if you get in there what you will see is not some uh, subsequent rejections of co-Christian others, but a reform of the Western church from within that gets the gospel clear of the law and Jesus big and beautiful in a way that your heart can hang on it. That's what's going on here. Okay, questions back I've just kind of gone. It's been like 30, 30 minutes. You've all been patient, like just nonstop. Do you, want to ask, do you ask questions here? What do you do at this point? Or should I just keep going? Yeah, go ahead. I just have a few. I took it up with Scott one day about going to the communion table and examining my sins. And I says, uh, the way I start out is the ones I know, the ones I forget, and the ones I don't even think that they are sins themselves. Please forgive me for my inability to recognize my own fault or sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll never get over that bar, will we? If that bar is in front of our forgiveness, forget about it. We're never going to clear that hurdle, right? So we, we conf- we're, we're actually recognizing that we can't even, we're so sinful we can't even see all of our sins, right? Yeah. And, and Jesus isn't waiting us for to, us to catch up to that. He will forgive them. In the back, yes? With Luther's emphasis on confession and absolution, why do you think in the small baptism that he doesn't as a sacrament Well, oh, you're stretching my mind because I was about to say, does he list? Yes, he does. So the other two get named as sacraments. You have the sacrament of Holy Baptism and in the small catechism, it's the sacrament of the altar. Okay, very well. He doesn't put the word on it, fair enough, uh, but that word is a subsequent definition, right? The, the word sacrament is actually not used in the Bible. In the Latin, it's a translation of the Greek mysterion. So that's to say it's a, it's a theological category that we craft and use. It's a good one. But we always have to say, what does this category mean? And some definitions of sacrament will say you have to have a visible external sign in the sacrament, like unto bread and wine, water, and then it is what it is. This is a very Augustinian definition. Uh, however, you just said when the priest says the words, isn't that because Thank you. Yes. Okay, so here we might have a, a personal manifestation tied to an oral oral manifestation, but we don't have something that, I don't know, we can pick up and, and put in a jar like water and bread and wine. Okay, so if that's not enough for you, then this would, this would be out for sacrament, but they treat it sacramentally, if you will. And for the exact reason that you're dealing with this external concrete thing, which is an external word spoken by an external person. And elsewhere in their writings, you can see them talk about three. So they're not, they're not hard and fast on two versus three. Yes? The of Do whatever you want consequences Because there's no temporal consequence for our sin, even as part of the I certainly hope so. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. He, he, he asked sometimes Lutherans, tell me if I don't do the justice to the question. Sometimes Lutherans are considered to be like the, the going, no consequences kind of variety of Christian. You know, you make all these claims to be in like uh, true blue Catholic in the small C sense, universal whole tradition of the church churches, et cetera. Uh, but, but you, you're the no consequences kind, right? You, you only forgive sins. And so he's asking, What about this binding key in something like the LCMS? Are there instances where that would ever come up, be used, what they would look like? Did I do justice to it? Okay, I'm doing justice to it. I certainly hope so, and it's Luther that kind of gives me the impetus for that hope, because that 1530 treatise on the keys says, if both keys aren't working, they're not Jesus's keys. All right? So if we found among us that we don't have the binding key, something is decidedly wrong. That being said, I haven't heard of many instances of that happening. But certainly within this congregation, the pastors of this congregation could, in instances, run into somebody who's sinning. The sin is clear. It's out there. But the person is saying something not like, oh, yes, it's very bad. Please forgive me. Well, then you're just forgiven. You'd be absolved. But saying, that's no sin. There's no problem with us. This, you're just misunderstanding it. I'm totally free to do this. In that instance, then, uh, it's incumbent upon them as part of their office to say, you can't. You may not. If you persist in that, you will have no forgiveness. Right? You say this is no sin, you'll have no forgiveness. Right? You'll be cut off from the Lord's table. You can't be at the Holy Supper. It could be done. Now, the reason I have a slight reservation here is because I fear that how the LCMS lives with itself today, that that person could just drive down the road five miles one way or five miles another way and just join another Lutheran congregation. And if that were the case... Uh, then we would have Jesus not agreeing with Jesus, right? In one place this is sin; it's bound. You may not touch that. You have to repent of that. And in another place, I don't know, winked away. No consequences. Uh, no repentance. Uh, but we live a little bit differently, as the, a lot differently, as the church now than they did then, right? We think of the church congregationally, percolating upwards. They thought of the church aerially, geographically, uh, such that. Even if you ran away from the pastor, the local congregation, you'd run into the keys at another level. Maybe that will be in our future. I don't know. Others. Yeah. Uh, in individual confession, at the end, mm-hmm. uh, the person is asked, "Do you believe that you have received forgiveness?" Um, being the kind of person I am. <laughs> Sometimes I'll, I'll say yes, and then up here I'm thinking, I certainly hope so. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, a, it's just that human nature to say, well, I'm pretty sure to do. Yeah. It's kind of a weak thing. <laughs> now let me take up that question, because this is decidedly important, right? Is there actually a place you can go in this world, bear the whole darkness of your soul, Uh, and not have it come back to you, but be taken away from you, and that you can actually be sure that that happened before God. I'm going to revise your question just a little bit, because in the right, it's slightly different. It's not, do you believe that your sins were forgiven? But before the pastor ever speaks forgiveness, he asks, do you believe that the word of forgiveness that I speak to you is Christ's word, that it comes from God himself? And only after the penitent says, yes, I believe does he then say, I forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So I'm not actually asked about how I feel. I'm basically just asked, do I think that this guy gets to talk for God? And then he talks for God. And, and my conscience is meant to just line up behind that and say, that's the way it is. God and all his angels agree. And I can hang my heart on it. And it's important because if I'm left in doubt about that, it'll still be a dark day. Okay, i'm going to give you a couple of slides i'll take one more question if i can lutherans still had this for a while i'm showing you pictures here of 17th and 18th century confessionals that were built into lutheran churches in germany right they had structures like this and what is this say? these are so interesting to me because these say i'm not hiding here i have nothing to fear right it's open uh, but the fact that you have a structure within the church says it's normal. It's there. These you can still visit. These were in Königsberg in uh, Prussia. These are still in, in uh, Gorlitz over on the German-Polish border. But these are Baroque confessionals that still stand in a Lutheran church there to this day. Right? This was so important to them that they actually built this into the sanctuary. So you could you could still see it happening. Uh, basically, it ended with pietism and rationalism. Then that was all kind of gone, and it was the interior religion of the heart and the mind that took over. Uh, but, you know, thankfully, we are, we're getting some of this back. One last question. I saw a hand in the back. Go for it. Uh, back to, to confession, then. Do you, you, I don't believe you're saying this, but it almost sounds like you're saying, in order to have your sins forgiven, then... You have to have before a pastor who is speaking Jesus' words in order to forgive. Where if you sin and the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you've sinned and you confess right then and there, forgive me, Lord, your sins are forgiven, are they not? Well, Jesus is so uh, crazy about forgiving us that A, he doesn't do it in just one way. Right, he baptizes us, forgiveness of sins. He gives us his body and blood, as he says in his own uh, institution, for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, he preaches the forgiveness of sins to us, Luke twenty-four, preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But he also gives this, and this is unique. And I, I would guess that you and I share, this, because I think every Christian shares this. We have sins that don't go off of our hearts just by saying that prayer. I know I do. And this is for them, right? That I actually have a place to go when it's still burdening it's still pressing and then this word is meant to take them away righteous with god all right thanks everybody i got to go suit up it's great to be with you bless you i'll look forward to maybe being back again sometime in the future thank you